Why do we have to go through the trouble of growing the way we grow? This is a question I've had for a long time. And usually it shows up when I find myself in a circumstance and and failure or maybe a, a shortcoming or something in between has surfaced in my heart or in my mind. And I just get frustrated. I think, why don't you just zap us when we become Christians and just make us like Jesus? I mean, who wouldn't become a Christian then, right? Why does it have to be so hard? When the story of creation begins to unfold in Genesis, here's what the author writes. So then the Lord God did what? Planted a garden. This is an incredible picture. God, the gardener, as described in John 15, begins to plant a garden. This is incredible. All throughout Scripture, there are moments when we get a glimpse into God's character and who He is and how He operates. And so on the very first pages of Scripture, we get a very important clue as to who He is. I don't know why God planted a garden. He could have said, you know, garden, and then there would have been a garden. When God wanted light, He said, let there be, and there was, and that's all there was to it. You know, He doesn't talk about the putting the photons together and, you know, no, it's just light. It's just there. When God wanted a garden, He could have said tree, but He didn't say tree. Apparently, He took a seed, and apparently, He got down on His knees, and He parted the dirt, and He tilled the soil. You've planted before, right? You've planted some things along the way. This is what God did. He took the seed and he put it in the ground and he covered it up. He could have created it grown, but he didn't. He planted a garden. And then the very next verse says this. And so the Lord God made all sorts of trees. He made them do what? grow up. That's what they did. He made them grow up. You know what that means, right? That this seed that God planted, well, as Jesus says in the Gospels, it it dies, and then something grows from it. The picture of death and burial and resurrection from the very first pages of Scripture. And so this seed that is dead now begins to grow up from the ground, and it grew up. At first it wasn't a tree. At first it was a, we call it a sapling, right? And it begins to emerge, small little leaves, tiny little little trunk that will one day become a mighty whatever it is, right? Oak of some kind or something that's going to bear fruit, and it grows up from the ground. Trees that were beautiful, that produced delicious fruit. John 15 that we've been in for the last two weeks and today the final week, third week, gives us this picture that Jesus is the vine and we are the what? We are the branches and God the Father is the what? He is the gardener. He tills the soil. He plants the seed. And so when I get frustrated and I wonder, why doesn't God just make us sanctified immediately? Why doesn't He just zap us to become like Jesus? Why do I have to 
give up certain things that I want to become more like him in the process, I've come to the conclusion after a few decades that it is because God loves to watch things grow. You too. You love to watch things grow. Now, I know some gardeners that hobby at it and have started at it and quit at it. They, they want the fruit. They just want the fruit. But the gardener who loves to garden loves the dirt. They love the feel of their fingers in the dirt. They love the smell of, of the dirt. They love the feel of what it means to plant and cover and water and wait and watch. And then they love the very first peak from the ground that comes up as much as they love the fruit because they love to watch things grow. That's who God is. That's probably why you're going through some of the things that you're going through now. It's probably why you're dealing with some of the issues that you're dealing with in your own heart and in your own mind right now. So we've been in John 15, this, this passage. The goal has been to help us understand what it means to have union with God. And so the first week we explained that, that this, these 17 verses at the very beginning of John 15, that Jesus, God, the gardener, they're all a part of the process God lifts us up and He cleans us off so that we can grow fruit. Then we talked about what fruit is like, what, what kind of fruit we will bear. And in the second week, we talked about that we will bear much fruit, which really means how much fruit we would be immensely fruitful, if you remember that. And then now this week, we'll talk about one of the most important concepts that's laced throughout the entire passage that really brings it all home, what it means to be connected, what union with God is really about. And so just to give us a picture and help us understand where we were. Here we are in John 15, 5, verse 5, and this is what it says. I'm the vine, Jesus says, I'm the vine, and you are the what? We are the branches, every one of us. If you, say it with me, remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will be immensely fruitful, probably a better translation. This is a key idea and a key thought that's all through this passage, what it means to remain. And what Jesus says is obvious and it's clear and it almost escapes our understanding because we don't really think about the branch being connected to the vine. We just think it's just part of the same plant. But of course, Jesus wants us to understand this picture, this word picture. He wants us to imagine a vineyard. He wants us to Picture what it is like to see something that is growing and that is fruitful. And so he says, if you remain in me the way a branch does with the vine, and if, if I remain in you the same way a branch is connected to the vine, then you will bear much fruit. In other words, for the vine to stay connected to the branch is natural. For the branch to stay connected to the vine, well, that's required if it's going to have any fruit at all. And that is over and over in this passage. You will bear much fruit. And then he goes on to say this. You will bear much fruit. The picture that we had last week, remember the idea that we shared? For the branch, fruit is the natural result of being what? Connected to the vine. So if sin, as we said in previous series, the Greek word hamartia, if sin is missing the mark, the mark isn't moral perfection. The mark isn't even fruit. Fruit isn't even the goal. Fruit's just the natural result. Fruit isn't the goal. Connected is the goal. In other words, union with God is what Jesus would say. This is what it means to be connected 
to the vine. This is the center of the target, the bullseye. And then he goes on to say this, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me you can do what? That doesn't leave very much, does it? Think about it. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is true for you. This is true for everyone you know. It's true for people who don't even know Jesus. It's true for people who are, in their own hearts and minds, opposed to the idea of God or Him as Creator, certainly not Savior. This is true for all of creation. The Bible makes it clear that when the sun comes up, it's because God directed it. That when the snow falls, He's shaking His little box and making the snow fall. The, God, the Bible makes it clear that God is the impetus, the catalyst, the foundation, the creator, the beginning and the end of everything that ever exists. And there are people that do lots of things and believe that they do it apart from God. But Jesus makes it clear. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Remember when Paul was in the city of Athens and he came across some people that were very religious, but they weren't very devoted to God, the one true God. They'd worship many gods. And in the midst of this conversation that Paul has with them, he quotes one of their own philosophers to support the idea that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And when he quotes him, he says this, one of the most beautiful lines in Scripture, in him we live and we move and we have our being. This is true for everyone. You just happen to be among the group of people that understand this and know it. So that when you get out of bed in the morning and you put your feet on the floor, you know that your muscles and your tendons and your sinews and your ligaments, they're working because God directed them so. It's exactly why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you have to remain in me. What happens if I remain in him? Well, not only can I do some things, but I'm also immensely fruitful. Now, this idea of remaining in Christ or remaining with Jesus or Him remaining with us is in these 17 verses 10 different times. Over and over and over, it's repeated. This is the key thought that Jesus wants us to grab in John 15. And remember where He is. He's gone from the upper room. He's washed the disciples' feet. Judas has gone on to do his thing. Jesus is making his way probably to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in between fellowship and loneliness, connection and community, and death. This is where he's traveling, probably right through a vineyard. And he says, the vine and the branches, he points to the very object. They see it, they feel it, they smell it, and they understand it. And then he says, just the same way this branch is connected to the vine, this is what it means to remain in me, and I will remain in you. It's a mystical thing. It's a little bit elusive. So let's put some more words to it. Let's describe it more practically, more completely, so that you and I can walk away with something useful. I like the message translation that says this. Same verse. I'm the vine, you're the branches. When you're joined with me, that's good, a little more detail, and I with you, the relation is intimate and it's organic. It's a great word. Intimate 
Oh, maybe that freaks us out. What's that about? That seems a little strange. It is intimate and it is organic. This is the picture. The harvest is sure to be abundant. It's a good translation. But my favorite translation, probably because, I don't know, I'm old, I guess, is probably the new revised standard version. And it's this translation. It says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who, what? Abide in me. How many of you remember that word from this passage more than anything else? You remember it? Or maybe you remember the King James, which is close to abide. It's abideth. Somebody say abideth. See, that's the last time you probably say that in your life. Those who abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit. I like the word abide. I think it's better. I think it gives a different feel. It gives a picture and understanding. And we know that this English word abide is good for us, but the original word wasn't English. It was written in Greek. When Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, he's speaking in a common Greek language. And so the word that he used is this word, mano, abide. The NIV translates it remain. The King James abideth, the NRSV abide. For, for grammar geeks in the room, this, this word, this Greek word is a intransitive verb. Okay, now Some of you know what that means. It means that there's no object to the verb. Most verbs have an object. You hit something, you ride something. The action word is associated with an object that is receiving the verb's action, but this is intransitive. There's no object at all to the verb. In other words, here's why it's important and why I would even tell you that. The relationship is implied and it is the object. You remain. You abide. The relationship that exists between you and Jesus, this is the understanding of what Jesus is describing. It's such a rich and a meaningful word. Here, here's, this will give you a little more texture. The word means this, to dwell, good word, to tarry, or to sojourn, to travel. It means to continually endure. And the word in the Greek has such rich depth and meaning. It refers both to place and time. And this is important. Because if we're going to understand what Jesus means when he talks about remaining, then we need to understand he's talking about both location and over time. So where he goes, I go. Where I go, Jesus goes. He is remaining in me. That's his promise. But I remain with him. And so sometimes Jesus directs us places to go give up something for Lent, sacrifice this for somebody else, give some of yourself away, and we don't want to go there. But where Jesus goes, I go. And wherever I go, Jesus is with me too. It means that His words remain in me, and Jesus even says that in this passage, that if your words remain in me, you will bear much fruit. This is what it means to abide, to be with. This relationship is constant. Not only does it endure place to place, but it endures from time to time. It's not an on-again, off-again thing. It's with, always. This is what it means to have union with God.
It doesn't mean that you are morally perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't fail or don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you bear more fruit than somebody else. It doesn't mean that your life even looks all that different from somebody else. It means that you are with Jesus, that you know him and that he is with you. This is what it means to remain, to abide. So the question we asked last week now takes on a little bit more meaning. The question was, how is it with your soul? Now, that's even a more mystical question, but you could even, if you want to, take what you know now about what it means to remain, what it means to abide, and you could apply all of these concepts with it. How is it with your soul? How are you remaining with Jesus? I'll never forget a moment. The boys were little. I had stuck on at work, pretty stressful. I'd come home after a long day and spend some time with the boys, and then Don and I were catching up in the kitchen, and she was describing some things about her day and some friends and some difficulties, and she was, I don't know, I bet 10 or 15 minutes into talking about her day, fairly monologuish, you know, she's just describing some things that are happening, and all of a sudden she said a couple of sentences that didn't make sense to me at all. I had no idea what she was talking about, and she knew in that moment that somewhere in that conversation, about probably 30 seconds in, I had quit listening. And so she just tacked on a few weird random words to a couple of sentences just to see if she'd get a reaction from me. And I looked at her kind of funny, and I said, what? And she said, you weren't listening to me at all, were you? And I remember getting really hot, you know. <laughs> it was this moment when I just felt caught. I thought, oh. And, and I thought, I can't talk my way out of this because I have no idea what she said. And I said, you know, you're right. I totally, well, not a word. I didn't hear a thing. Now, I was in the same room with Donna. I was maybe five feet from her. I was present. I was there physically. But my mind was a million miles away. I mean, it made such an impression on me that has never happened since, right? <laughs> Not saying I remember everything she says, but she says something weird. I want to know where it came from, right? This is what it means to abide. Now, when we ask the question, how is it going with your soul? Your answer could be any number of things. Jesus' promise is that he'll remain with you. But sometimes we don't abide, right? I mean, sometimes we don't remain. And there are all kinds of reasons why you might not remain. Sometimes these reasons are many, layered, multi, and varied. But if you think back to a moment in your walk with God when you sort of drifted or maybe set Him aside or maybe kept Him at arm's length, or I bet you could probably describe that, that reason or that season of your life with one of these words or something that's pretty similar. Sometimes it's apathy because we're busy because we have things to do, because we are about other priorities, and Jesus just takes a bit of a backseat to our life. This happens all the time. To kind of drill down on this, we could simply ask, how's your margin? How's your margin in your life? You know what margin is, that space that has nothing in it. How is your margin? And most people who don't have margin have not been abiding. It's just a part of our life. When we're busy, we crowd out those things that do not clamor or claim our attention. And Jesus is quiet enough and subtle enough 
and gentle enough. He'll wait. He's abiding, but he's waiting on you. Sometimes it's apathy. Sometimes it's fear. When Donna's mom became sick with dementia and uh, Alzheimer's, Donna went through a season where she just was afraid to pray. She was afraid to pray for God to heal her mother, to, to take care of this issue with her mom. And she was afraid to pray because she thought, I don't know what I'll do if God doesn't answer this prayer. And so it drove a wedge. This fear drove a wedge between her and the Lord. We're afraid that maybe God won't show up for us the way that we want. And so we back off. We shut down. We close off. Maybe it's not apathy. Maybe it's not fear for you. Maybe it's anger because you did pray and it didn't turn out the way you wanted. And so anger sets in when our life doesn't turn out the way we think it will, when things are not going the direction that we would like for them to go. And so we begin to believe and understand that, first of all, we believe that God is sovereign, that He could handle this if He wanted to, that He could deal with this issue if only He desired, if only He would move on my behalf, if only He would fill in the blank. And so He hasn't, obviously, because we're still dealing with this issue or diagnosis or circumstance. And so the only thing left is anger. Acceptance may be on the other side of it, but right now anger takes center stage. And you know what it's like when you have anger with somebody. Uh, well, we do not abide when anger is in the middle. Sometimes it's confusion. It, we have a, a group of about 120 people from our church in various places that are reading through the New Testament, verse by verse, all throughout this year, through a Bible app. And, and I love to read the discussions. And it's obvious that as we read through the New Testament, there are many times we get to a certain part of Scripture and we just think, well, what in the world does that mean? I don't even know what to do with that. I have no idea what God meant. Have you ever read the Bible and thought that? Why is this even here? This doesn't even make sense. I mean, this just makes it hard. And so at times, God, in even His Word that is black and white and a little bit of red right in front of us, we think, I don't even know what to do with this statement, conclusion, story. And so we allow confusion to take center stage, and we just think, I don't even have time to figure this out. So we move aside. Maybe it's not confusion. Maybe it's bitterness. You know what bitterness is, right? Bitterness is, is the anger that you had before that you didn't deal with. And so anger, when it's baked long enough, it just becomes a hard, a hard thing of bitterness. And so we are just closed off to God. And of course, all of these have their roots in pride. Pride. This belief that I can probably handle this better than God can. I know what's better. I mean, let's be honest. If we were going to write this story, wouldn't you write a little bit different? Wouldn't you take it down a different path? Of course, these roots of pride cut at the truth of God's sovereignty. And all of these things that keep us from abiding, and you could make your own list as well, a little bit different, they all speak to the friction that we have with God and with life. They all speak to the pain and the difficulty that no one escapes in this life. The difficulty could all be related to disappointment and frustration with how things are moving or not moving. 
God said something very interesting in the Old Testament that he said through the prophet Hosea. Now, the Old Testament is a, a story of God's people coming near him and then wandering away from him over and over again. This is the entire Old Testament. And of course, it's my life and your life as well. But God would raise up a prophet occasionally and speak directly through them. And when God spoke through the prophet Hosea, he says this. In their misery, they will, what? I don't know why this is the case. There are many times when I feel exactly like that. I think, well, I've got the misery part down. It's the seeking God that I need to work on. God describes a component of human nature that is absolutely true across every culture, all people, all times, all places. You know it's true because you can think back to your own life. There are moments when you sought God with such passion and humility and just determined nature. And it was only because of the difficulty and the pain that you were experiencing. I don't know why this is the case, but it's true. In our misery, we seek the Lord. It's the friction and the pain that we've been describing that happens in our life. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our, what, does anybody know? Pain, that's right. God shouts to us in our pain. And so it's when we find ourselves not abiding that we experience this. In our misery, we seek Him. And so when this occurs, we experience something different of God. One of the best ways to approach this or to see it is really another verse that comes out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. One of the most powerful principles in all of Scripture. There's a lot around it. In fact, this whole section of Hebrews chapter 12 is worth your time to dig in. But these four words really encapsulate it all. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, that when you go through difficulty, when you go through pain, he says this, endure hardship as what? As discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Endure the pain or the difficulty. Endure the doubt or the season that you're in. Whatever experience it is, you can view it as an attack of the enemy, not very helpful generally. You can view it as your own stupidity. That may be true, also not helpful. You can view it as any number of things. But the writer of Hebrews says, you and I should endure hardship as discipline. Now, if you know anything about discipline, then this will help you understand why the writer says this. He's not saying that it is discipline, is he? Oh, this is really important. Don't miss it. That's why he uses the word as. Everything you experience that is not going the way you would like, any difficulty, could be the fault of your sin, somebody else's sin, or just the fall, whatever the reason is. Anything you experience that is a hardship, endure it as discipline. Is God doing it? Doesn't matter. You can leave that question for the theologians. Is he behind it? He really won't help you to know the answer to that. Endure it how? As discipline. What does discipline do? Well, discipline teaches us. And if you understand this, then you will experience all of the difficulties of your life in a very different way. You'll ask this question when things happen in your life. Lord, what can you teach me through this difficulty, this pain, this disappointment? 
When you go through an experience where you've not been abiding, when you have just kind of drawn away from God, when you've set Him aside, you decide His Word is just confusing, anger, bitterness, whatever it is, is in the way, and you begin to ask this question, Lord, what can you teach me through this difficulty, pain, and disappointment? Then you will be doing exactly what the writer of Hebrews says to do. You will endure hardship as discipline. And God will begin to open up all kinds of understandings, learning, knowledge, experience, shaping. When we receive what life brings and we open our hands and we say, Lord, teach me. What is it that you want me to know? How do you want me to experience this? What can I learn? I want to abide. In fact, you cannot ask this question without abiding. That's the very essence of abiding, is coming to the Lord open-handed and asking Him, Lord, show me what you want me to know. This is what it means to remain in Him, no matter what happens. So then Jesus says this in John 15. So as the Father has loved me, so now I have loved you. Now, what? Remain in my, what? Love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And now if you have believed for most of your life that the center of the target is moral perfection, then you immediately begin to think, Oh, well, then I just disqualified myself because I can't remember the number of times that I did not kept the commands. Have you lost track of the number of times that you have not kept the commands? If that's the case, then you see this, oh, well, then I, I surely haven't remained. And Jesus doesn't remain in me. The commands are so difficult. The tower is so tall. The bar is set so high. How can I remain? But then Jesus follows it up with this final statement about love and the commands, and he says this, my command is this. What is his command? Say it with me. Love each other as I have loved you. See, the standard used to be love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And Jesus comes along and says, you know, that was good for a while. You know, it helped. It helped restore some things. It helped move you in the right direction of love. But now Jesus says, this is different. I want you to love each other as I have loved you, which means that Jesus loves in such a way that you cannot escape His love. That's how you love one another. You cannot escape that love. This love cannot be destroyed. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be hardened against you. This is how Jesus loves. This is how He loves you, no matter what. Unconditional, regardless, not in spite of, but because of. This is how he loves. Even Paul says it this way. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and what? But the greatest of these is, that's right. This is how Jesus loves. So, how goes it with your soul? What has abiding looked like for you lately? Are you taking in his word? Are you allowing what Jesus says to inform how you treat others, how well you surrender to God? Are you in a place right now where you haven't been abiding and the question that you need to ask is, Lord, how do you want to use this experience to teach me about your love for me? How do you want me to deal with this pain and difficulty and disappointment? What does it mean 
right now for you to abide? Have you been avoiding him? You head in the other direction? Arms length? We take you through a prayer right now. Don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, this is our hope and our prayer that we would uh, listen to the words of, of this scripture in powerful ways. That they would speak to the depth of our heart and that we would know what it means to abide, to abide with you, to remain in you. Lord, we want to walk with you every day. We want to go with you. We want you to go with us. We want your words to remain in us. We want, we want to bear much fruit. And Lord, we believe that the fruit that we bear if we remain connected to the vine will first be shown in love. Complete, unconditional, relentless love that never gives up, that is patient, that is kind. Lord, we can only do this if we rest, if we abide, if we dwell, if we sojourn with you. And so we pray that we would do that today and this week. 